Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. Today we have with us the president and CEO of a, just a major, major multifamily operator with decades of experience. So this is going to be extremely valuable information, not coming from somebody that just uh, you know did a seminar and is doing his first deal. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but no, this is a repeat guest who I've been looking so forward to catching up with since the last one we did is a year ago and everything has changed dramatically since then. He is the president and CEO of Cohen Esri. He is Lee Harris. Lee, welcome back to Street Smart Success. Roger, I appreciate your invitation to come back. You had a great time the last time and I expect we'll have an even better time this time. I, I think so. Well, there's been more drama in the last year, that's for sure. Um, Lee, for, for the, for the sake of the audience members that did not hear our first show, which is a year ago plus, I think, um, maybe what's the, uh, what's the reader's digest on Cohen Esri and, uh, you know, it's, it's roots and where it is now. Well, it's a reader's digest book rather than a reader's digest magazine, <laughs> I think, because we've been around that long. It's, uh, but I'll do the condensed book. How's that sound? Sure. You do, you, you know. do whatever you want. Well, we started started in 1970 as a property management uh, outfit. I I came along with Bob Esri in 1975. I joined him. Uh, we merged with a, a friend of ours, Roger Cohen, in 1987. Cohen had a, a brokerage and a commercial leasing and brokerage firm, and uh, we became Cohen Esri in 1987, doing apartment management, uh, office building, shopping center, industrial management leasing, brokerage, the whole nine yards. And then we, Roger unfortunately passed away in 2002. And then we uh, sold the commercial side of the business in 2005. We had some concerns about what was happening with margins at the time. And uh, thank goodness we did it when we did it because then the world came to an end in 2008 and 2009. And we were really glad not to be in the commercial space. We focused on apartments ever since. We've been acquiring through the Cohen Esri Apartment Investors Business Unit, uh, market rate at properties. We develop affordable and workforce housing through the Cohen Esri Development Group. We have a management unit to Cohen Esri Communities. Uh, Cohen Esri Capital Partners is our capital formation unit. And we do a little bit of tax credit syndication work with historic credits in that business, uh, as well as raising debt and equity for our acquisition and development efforts. And we're headquartered in Kansas City and actually in Merriam, Kansas, which is a, a suburb on the Kansas side and operate currently in 17 states across the country. Okay. That was absolutely fantastic because it was thorough and yet it, it was fairly concise. Uh, so good, good, good for you. I appreciate it. So going back to when Roger Cohen passed away and, you know, going uh, from there to, let's say, 2005, you and Mr. Esri's decision to just do multifamily, uh, why was that decision made? 
Well, so I'll give you an example. We uh, sold a large piece of ground in 1995 and were the only broker involved in that transaction. It was a $55 million transaction. There was a very nice uh, brokerage fee of a million and a half dollars. That's a whale type of transaction for a firm our size at the time. Roll the tape forward five years. And in 2000, we sold a half a million square foot class A office complex for $72 million. No other brokerage firm was involved. Commission was $456,000. So there was compression on commissions. Uh, we had invested huge amounts of money in software to support the 40 brokers that we had. Uh, we had a marketing department with five people. And every transaction was a co-op transaction with another brokerage firm. So what started out back in the 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s as a, a fairly lucrative leasing and brokerage operation was really feeling the stress. And I actually did a we did about 500 transactions a year. There might be two, three, four whale size transactions. If you took those out of the mix, we were lucky to break even. And after Roger died, Bob and I looked at each other and said, man, this is a lot of brain damage and a lot of risk and exposure to continue doing this uh, without knowing that we're going to have those whale size transactions all the time. And uh, that's when we made the decision to sell the, the, the property management unit for the commercial side, as well as the leasing and brokerage to a group of the brokers and and property managers, and, and they brought in some outside folks to help with the funding, and uh, we went on our separate ways. So I guess uh, that's easy enough to understand. Uh, compressed margins, uh, a couple big deals was where all the profit was. So if those don't, deals don't materialize in a given year, you're, you're not making any money. Maybe you're losing money. I, I guess so uh, on the acquisition side, though, um, it, it sounds like you guys were in, in the brokerage firm, you guys were doing, you know, it could have been malls, it could have been land, it could have been any asset class. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So I guess moving forward out of the brokerage model, why did you gravitate just to multifamily as opposed to strip centers or industrial or, you know, whatever the heck it was? Well, Bob and I grew up in the apartment side of the business <clears throat> and uh, the one thing we like about apartments uh, is the fact that it's much easier to adjust to market conditions with one-year leases than it is three, five, seven-year leases that you have in commercial properties. Uh, and, and so that, that was a, a big factor. And we decided we did not want to be acquiring uh, I mean, we owned a shopping center here or there. We owned an office building here or there. We own the office building now where we have our corporate headquarters and there's a, another a couple of tenants in there as well. But the cost of tenant improvements and the cost of commissions are big time dings on the, on the bottom line. And you don't have that quite so much with the apartments. Um, and so we chose to go down the apartment path and, and really not just manage. We, we've been a, uh, we had been a fee manager. We owned a few properties here and there, but we really wanted to get into a programmatic position where we were acquiring uh, market rate apartments. But the other thing that I liked, and I learned this from Bob Esri years ago, and that is to have diversified income streams. And that's one of the reasons we have the development side of this. So we're developing affordable and workforce housing. 
that is, there's a huge need for that. Uh, there was a study I saw recently that said we're 7 million units short in the affordable and workforce space. And that'll never be filled in, in my lifetime, uh, certainly. And so we continue to build uh, properties across the country, earn developer fees, management fees. The acquisition business is, is a market rate uh, business, a little bit more cyclical as we're finding out. Uh, but we've had a good run with with the apartment acquisition of market rate uh, properties as well. And then, of course, we have the, the, the property management unit that provides a, a fairly steady income stream for us as an owner operator. We still do some third party fee management. We'll take an assignment here or there, but we're not hanging out our shingle in any big way to try to attract third party fee management business. Okay. So, so going back to kind of that uh, pivotal time, kind of segueing out of the brokerage model, the multifamily that you were in, Lee, then was it, and I think you've already stated it, but I, but I'm trying to, I'm writing down furious notes. So uh, just bear with at that time is most of the multifamily that you were involved in as third party managers, as opposed to being mostly principals at that time or no? Yes, definitely. That's the case. We were uh, managing for REITs. We were managing for banks, savings and loan associations, insurance companies, pension funds, we did a lot of that management on a multi-state basis over the over many years, and we have a lot of great connections there. But we made we made a lot of other people a lot of money, and in the process, we were scratching our heads, looking at each other, saying, "Why don't we? Why don't we do this for ourselves and our investors?" And that's exactly what we've done. Got it. See that? that okay, so it, it, this is a very, very, very logical progression. Uh, you know, why are we doing this for every, we, we could, we could do this on our own. And I'm thinking to myself, what a, what better background could you possibly have going into the principal side than having managed thousands and thousands of units? I mean, so much uh, risk is mitigated and what an intuitive pivot, let's put it that way. So on the development side, then currently, uh, what you're saying is that most of the development is an affordable and workforce. And I guess if you were to put that in one bucket, how much is affordable versus workforce? And how do you even define the two? And is there some overlay? I'm trying to get my head around that. Certainly. There are multiple funding sources uh, that are buckets, let's say. There are affordable housing tax credits. Uh, so you have affordable uh, housing that's developed using those credits. There is a, a program in several states called the Public Facilities Corporation program where uh, there's a, a healthy tax abatement, but there is an affordability component to those projects. And we're doing some of those as well. It's not using tax credits, uh, but it's using a, a, a bond financing with, with an affordability component as well as market rate component. And then we're using the opportunity zone uh, concept in uh, several markets as well. We have a big uh, 326 unit uh, development that we're working on in Ogden, Utah, and 141 unit to project in Asheville, North Carolina. We're working utilizing uh, the opportunity zone uh, structure, which also has an affordability component. So I would say the PFC, the Public Facility Corporation, and the 
Opportunity Zone or OZ, as it's called in the in the industry, those are more workforce oriented. But the affordable housing tax credit uh, properties are also workforce. Sometimes they're senior. Uh, most of this is new construction. We are not opposed to acquiring an existing apartment complex that's that was previously developed under uh, the affordable housing tax credit uh, program and. Uh, resyndicating it using tax credits again. We, we, we're doing that with one property right now, but mostly we're focused on larger markets now. Uh, we're in Denver, we're in Colorado Springs, we're in Madison, Wisconsin. Mankato, Minnesota is a smaller market. We've got a project under construction there. San Antonio, we have a lot of larger, there's a 301 unit and there's a, a 212 unit under construction, and we're getting ready to start 233 units there. We like the larger markets where there's such a need for affordability uh, that it just opens up all sorts of opportunities. We work closely with the neighborhoods to make sure that our uh, the project we're proposing is compatible with that neighborhood and that the neighbors want us. Uh, if the neighbors don't want us, well, I'm not going to fight. It's just not worth it. And why ram it down somebody's throat? So, Lee, when you say that you are developing, in my mind, I was thinking as apart from acquiring, uh, well, I'll frame it as a question instead. So, so you're, you guys are, are developing and then you're, you're not selling to a, an operator. You're operating those, you're keeping those and operating them as well. That's correct. That is correct. Ah, and we're, okay. we're usually the general partner in that structure. And when you use the affordable housing tax credit, there's at least a 15 year life to that, to that hold. Uh, so we're in it for the long haul with all the compliance and everything else that's required. Uh, the OZ program is a 10-year hold uh, minimum to get the opportunity zone tax benefits to the investors. So those are long-term. Our market rate acquisition business, Roger, is typically a five-year hold. We've got one of our investors is a seven-year hold, but for the most part, we're looking at five-year holds, and then we'll recapitalize those properties in new partnerships, or we'll sell them. Hmm. So, what? Um, first of all, how long have you been focusing on development of affordable and workforce? So, we started the development unit in 1994, and the first projects came out of the ground in 1996. They were more rural. 32 to, we had a couple of 97 unit, but 32 to 48 unit properties in Iowa, in Kansas, and in Missouri. Uh, then we graduated to some urban acquisitions that were 120 units, 184 units. I think there was a 64 unit using uh, HUD financing. And there were some Section 8 uh, uh, contracts in some of those properties. And we used affordable housing tax credits there as well. And then we moved into an historic model in 2008, 2009. This is kind of an interesting twist. Back when the world came to an end, the financial crisis, there was nobody, uh, no investors were particularly interested in investing in tax credit properties at that time. The market seized. So we had a relationship with a family office. They had an interesting family that needed the tax credits and, and had a C-Corp. So we started our own fund and it was for, we did five small deals in that fund uh, where we took historic properties in small markets 
redevelop them using federal and state historic tax credits, federal historic, uh, federal affordable housing tax credits, and no debt. Uh, there, there was a construction loan, and with tax credits, we paid it, paid off the loan. And we did that because we wanted to prove that that's a viable model and that we could drive the rents down in these small rural markets, and that worked. Uh, and th those, those projects were successful. Then, uh, really, 2014, 2015, we went into the, the version that we are now. I'll call it uh, Conager Development Group version 4.0, 3.0, whatever. And the sweet spot there is 125 to 300 units uh, and new construction principally. Uh, we've got one 93-unit historic deal that we're finishing right now. But uh, we currently... Uh, We've got 16 projects that are in some phase of construction or development with site control in six states, about 2,600 units. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a lot to say grace over. And since 2015, I think our total development uh, uh, ticket's about $875 million worth of projects, so uh, including those that we've completed. Wow. And so... You're the bulk of what you're doing then is is development as opposed to acquisitions right now. Oh no, no, we're we're still very active. We're, we're trying to buy twenty five hundred to three thousand units per year. We've hit that before. The market's not there right now for sure. In fact, uh, we had uh, we had three acquisitions in twenty twenty two, two of which originated in twenty twenty one and closed in early twenty two. We had one origination and closing in 2022. We have one, our first one this year, but again, uh, with interest rates up, and uh, you probably know this, but the apartment market is uh, kind of seized again because of interest rates. A lot of money sitting on the sidelines, but negative leverage is out there. Uh, when, you, when you have a cap rate that uh, is, is lower than your interest rate or the way I look at it, the loan constant, that's not a particularly good situation. Now, some of these markets can grow. You, you can grow your way out of that negative leverage pretty quickly, but we like margin to safety, and so we're not inclined to do much of that. We'll do loan assumptions that are older loans that are 3% and a 55 6% know, cap rate, uh, and that's still a good deal. I see. Gosh darn, what was I going to ask you? Okay, because man, you guys do a lot of stuff. Um, this is just a small detail. Um, opportunity zones. I don't think in, in terms of Ogden, Utah, and Asheville, North Carolina, uh, and, and, and I'm probably being naive here, but I thought those were like solid middle class, if not upper, upper middle class areas. And when I think of opportunity zone, I know there's rural. I know there's certainly a lot of urban, um, but, you know, clear me up on this. Yeah. So opportunity zones are in all 50 states uh, and they are uh, surgically determined. Uh, so you could have a major metro and a, a vibrant metro, but there may be difficult to develop areas because of contamination and the soil, because of all sorts of factors that could make that particular location deemed by the state as an opportunity zone. And as a result, then, uh, if you do a development in that opportunity zone, 
uh, it gets some tax benefits, which currently include the, if, if you invest your gain from the sale of a stock or another property uh, until April 15, 2027, you defer your capital gain. But what's even more critical at this point is if you hold that property for the full 10 years, 100% of the, the gain on the sale of that property is, un, is not taxed. That's a huge deal. And so that's why there are investors that are raising their hand saying, okay, we've got some, some gain that we like to, to roll over into an OZ and not pay our tax on that gain until April 15, 2027. And so we'll do that, but hold that property for at least 10 years so that when we sell that property at the end of 10 years for a, a big markup, we hope that none of that markup is taxed. Well, I mean, you're almost, e e even if the property just breaks even, which obviously it's going to do much better than that, you've essentially made whatever you would have, whatever your tax rate would have been on it. Well, gains, right? You see, right. you know, between wherever you live, let's say between 20% Fed. And if you live where I do in California, it's almost 14%. You've made 35% on your money, even if the thing never gets off the runway, just in terms of dodge, you know, right. 1031 wanting. Now, what I don't know, Roger, what I don't know is on a state-by-state -state basis what happens with the state tax. This is federal tax I'm talking about here. So there may be some states that, that piggyback on the federal rules and say, yep, we'll do the same thing with our tax as well. I got I'm it. pretty sure California is not doing that. So. I can assure you of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for clearing, clarifying that because, yeah, you're that good, good point. And I guess in the world of uh, development, which you guys have been doing for so long, are you acquiring entitled land or you guys buy raw land and, and then go through the entitlement process? Like, what are the risks involved? Well, all of the above. But typically, we're, we're looking at locations where we're hearing the city say, we'd like a project. We'd like uh, a workforce housing here or we like affordable housing. Then... Again, sometimes we have contamination. We have a big project in uh, San Antonio that we had to literally dig deep down and transport away a bunch of contaminated soil and uh, then bring back fresh soil. And it went through quite a rigorous process of inspection and testing uh, until we, we, we got a clean bill of health there, which is invaluable. The city loves that we did that. How much uh, did all that cost? Oh, several millions of dollars. Oh, I couldn't wow. tell okay. you exactly, but it was millions of dollars. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. It's a 301 unit property. So it's going to be a big, big project when it's finished. But typically we're, we're working in an area where it's already zoned. Uh, sometimes we have to do, do some modification to the zoning, but we're not going to go into a single family zoned location and say, we want to build apartments up zone for us, please. Uh, that's just, there's too much risk and too much brain damage and generally neighborhood fights that occur and the, the whole NIMBY situation. So you know, we'll, we'll look for some tax abatement. We'll look for some TIF. Uh, generally, we get that uh, when we're playing workforce and affordable. It's much more difficult to get that for market rate. But people understand that there's no way to build affordable housing. I'll give you an example. Just finished 200 units in San Antonio. We would have, if we rented that property 
at market rates that we would have had to have for the construction cost, it would have been over $2,000 a month. We are renting that up at the, those apartments for $950 to $1,100 a month because we got development subsidies in the principally affordable housing tax credits. But I believe we had some other benefits that we got from the city that helped us buy down that construction cost and allowing us to rent to people in an income bracket that can afford it. Uh, but there's no way to, to, to build new construction without that development subsidy if you want to charge rents that are half of, of what it normally would cost in the free market. Yeah, it just doesn't pencil. You, you, the, the, the cost, it costs too much to build it. That's right. Uh, how do you raise money for that? Is it, is it uh, primarily institutions or, I mean, does it even filter down to retail investors? How does, how does that get handled? Institutions, if it's an affordable housing tax credit, that's there's some real restrictions on how much an individual investor can utilize. I mean, I think it's $7,500 a year in credits. That doesn't make much sense. So it's typically institutional players, banks, uh, particularly banks that need CRA credits. Uh, there are insurance companies that make these investments. There are corporate investors uh, that make these investments. I know Google has made investments like this. Amazon has made investments. It's tax-driven uh, to a great extent, uh, but it's institutional money. And likewise, on the Opportunity Zone, uh, that's there are funds out there, Opportunity Zone funds, and that's generally what we're working with. And that's a group that has aggregated a bunch of maybe retail investors or others that have rolled capital gains into their fund. And uh, they're, they're placing uh, that money in, in an Opportunity Zone project with us. I see. Got it. Okay. Boy, boy oh boy. All right. I understand. Um, well, what, what a... Um what a great niche in the marketplace. And I guess what I would follow that statement up with is uh, how great of a niche is it in terms of the competitive landscape? There's there's a lot of competition and let's talk market rate first. There's a ton of competition on the market rate side. And so we've seen, we've seen prices. I'm not going to call them values. I'm going to call them prices. We've seen prices bid up extraordinarily high. Uh, cap rates have gotten as low as 3%. I mean, and I'm so rudely interrupting, and I That's probably okay. did not frame the question properly, okay. or the timing probably wasn't right. I mean, on the affordables, the, the oh. ground up affordable stuff that you're sure. doing, and I, and I apologize. No, no, no worries. On the affordable, uh, that is, again, I said earlier, seven million unit shortfall in this country. There aren't enough of us in this industry to cover that shortfall. Why is that? Because the complexity here is so. Uh, it, it is amazing how complicated these deals are. We may have uh, an affordable deal that has eight or nine layers of funding. Uh, it takes from the time we identify a site until we open the doors. Years, usually we're talking three years. So it takes a long time. It takes a lot of capital. You got to be able to tie up the land for a long period of time. You've got to have compliance that uh, you make sure you're you're complying with federal regulations on the affordable housing tax credit or state uh, regulations as well. So it is not, uh, there is competition, but there's plenty of room for everybody right now. And then some, you'll sometimes see market rate developers try to get into this space and not generally do very well because they're not used to 
the complexity that we have to deal with. So here's a devil's advocate. Given what you just described and given what you also described about the market rate environment with, you know, negative leverage and prices have gone you know, crazy, you know, with interest rates going way down, of course, until a year ago. But, um, you know, everything I'm hearing is that there's still a big delta in bid to ask to this day. Uh, maybe Class C stuff, you know, built in the 60s and 70s is those prices have come down as much as 20%, but I don't get the sense that that's what you do. Why don't you just go do all affordable and, and not even uh, do market rate acquisition? It's devil's advocate. Sometimes I ask myself the same question. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> again, there's a quicker turnaround on the market rate. That's number one, that we're buying existing product. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking for diversified revenue streams from a corporate standpoint. And we've had some real good luck. Since 2011, we've bought over 10,000 units in 33 properties at a total cost of $1.2 billion. So there's some scale here. Uh, We've sold 3,900 units in 17 of those 33 assets at a weighted IRR of 22%. Now, obviously, that's been very good uh, for our investors, and it's been very good for our company. And so we're we're in this for the long haul. I'm not looking to sell this business to a private equity firm. In fact, we're looking at sustainability here. There's several hundreds of families that are dependent upon Cohen Esri for every other week paycheck. And I want that to continue. So we've got our succession plan, I guess is what you would call it. We have that already in place. And we want to have this diversified income stream that we scale to the point that it's sustaining for decades to come. Uh, And it concerns me that you're highly regulated in the affordable space, particularly, and in Anytime you're dealing with the government, there's regulation, and we've seen it before where development has uh, has had to slow down because some new regulations came into, into the fore. Uh, if we have market rate, and that's acquisitions of Class B product, and we have development of affordable and workforce, we got that diversification we're looking for, and if one of them gets uh, clipped a little bit, the other one's probably going strong. I understand. Okay, well, all right. So diversification. How, how many? How many did you say? You said you've acquired thirty-three. How many did you say you've sold? We sold. Uh, we acquired thirty-three properties with ten thousand one hundred and seventy-one units, to be precise. And we've sold thirty-eight hundred and seventy-eight units in seventeen assets, and that weighted IRR was twenty-two percent. So right. I'm pleased with that. Uh, I can't accuse you of not being on top of your numbers. Okay, what markets are you acquiring in? What, what markets are you looking in? Southeast mostly or Midwest? Yeah, well, or? Midwest, Southeast. So here, here's a quick, uh, on the, the market selection, we start with the top 100 markets by population. We throw out the West Coast and the Northeast. Those are specialized markets we don't understand and don't particularly want to learn. So now we're dealing with probably 51 markets or so out of the top 100 by population. Then uh, we're looking for certain macro growth metrics over the past five years and projected over the next five years, including population growth, job growth, and Class B rent growth. Then we get into more of a micro uh, metric 
looking at the desirability of schools, crime statistics, household incomes in a one and three mile radius of the asset, uh, things like that. We want to acquire at a price point that is 25% below replacement cost. Uh, and, and so, again, these are high bars, so we don't buy a whole lot, but we look at hundreds and hundreds of deals every year. And the last piece is we want to be able to find the same vintage property selling today at a price per unit that we expect to sell at the end of a five-year hold. So if, if we expect, if we buy today at $140,000 a unit and we expect to sell it at $175,000 a unit in five years, we need to find something similar of age and quality that's already selling for that $175,000 today. That's called margin of safety. Warren Buffett talked about it. Benjamin Graham talked about it. Lee Harris talks about margin of safety. You're, you're, in, you're, in, you're in good company. I think so. The, 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 so. So Warren Buffett is probably saying, you know what, this is what Benjamin Graham and Lee Harris says. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Except, but, but the good news is for you is, is unlike Benjamin Graham, you're still alive. That's for sure. And I intend to stay that way. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, give, given kind of that, that criterion that you so eloquently describe, what are a couple markets that you really like? Yep. So we, we like Atlanta. One of the reasons we like Atlanta is a good swath of that city has a moratorium on adding more apartments. I'm not big on that from a public policy standpoint. However, it's very interesting. We, we had a big sale, a 350-unit property we sold in Atlanta uh, with a, a, a sale price that was off the charts. And that was one of the reasons that somebody bought it uh, so, so uh, at such a high price is because nobody can build anything else nearby. Uh, so we like Atlanta. We like the Florida markets, uh, Jacksonville, Orlando, to some extent Orlando, Tampa, uh, particularly, we don't play in Miami. It's kind of a crazy market in Miami, but certainly the Fort Myers, Southwest Florida market, where I where I am here in Naples, Florida, uh, we we love this this part of the state. Uh, we like Texas, uh, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, we've not been able to buy anything in Austin. Uh, we are working on an acquisition in Houston. We'll see if that actually happens. We like the Midwest. We like Kansas City has been a good market for us. Uh, Columbus has been a good market for us. Uh, we're in Lexington, Kentucky. We like Louisville. We like Indianapolis. We like the Denver market. Uh, Colorado's a good, a good market, though it's been very difficult to find anything that makes any sense, and we haven't purchased anything there. So Midwest, Sunbelt primarily. I see. And, and so how many do you have? Now, I know you've acquired 33. You've disposed of nine. What is, what's the current unit count? Yeah. So right now, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, current unit count for just the market rate, but for affordable and market rate, we're about 12,000 units. I see. Combined. I got it. And, and what kind of, on the acquisition side, what kind of debt are you doing or have you, have you been doing? Are you, is it, you do all fixed or floating or depends or? We've done some floating, but we will only do floating if we buy a cap. We've hit the cap on some of the acquisitions and we're glad we bought the cap. Uh, and you underwrite to the cap, obviously. We've done some life company debt. Uh, we've done the GS, some GSE debt. Uh, we're working on a deal right now with uh, potentially a HUD 
uh, 223F. Uh, so we play the field. There's there we've done several assumptions, uh, CMBS assumptions and uh, GSE assumptions. So it's whatever works. What is your prognostication for the next, I don't know, 6, 12, 24 months for a lot of newer operators that uh, did, you know, super aggressive uh, floating, high, you know, super high leverage uh, and, and it's going to be difficult for them to get refinanced. What's your, what, do you, what, what, what's the landscape going to look like here, Lee? Yeah, I got to go a bit macro here. And I happen to be, uh, not a fan of the Fed right now for a lot of reasons, but I think the Fed, uh, broke, they broke our system. They broke our economy, printing all the money they printed. And then they've been way too aggressive on, on raising rates. I'm concerned about a couple of things. One, the supply chain, and we feel this every day. The supply chain has been broken since COVID. And uh, I don't think that all these rate increases help uh, the uh, fix to the supply chain. And we're doing deglobalization, certainly pulling manufacturing out of China back to the U.S., to other countries. That means things are going to cost more. So I'm concerned that this 2% uh, inflation target Maybe too aggressive. Maybe it needs to be higher, at least for a while. And and then we've seen some unintended consequences. I think certainly the banking system is uh, has been exposed with the SBB. But I'm even more concerned about commercial real estate loans and what that means to the banks. Uh, especially, I think there's eight hundred billion dollars uh, in the next twelve months. I heard that somewhere. $800 billion of loans, commercial real estate loans that are maturing. And so are we going to extend and pretend or are, are the banks going to, to take it in the chin for that? And that's a lot of regional banks and that's some of the national banks that have that paper. And I think to, to summarize here, the Fed is going to have to uh, start lowering rates. I was aghast that they raised 25 bips last week. Uh, I think they should have cut 50 bips. And I think that uh, the, the other problem is, how are we going to service the national debt when we have interest rates as high as it is? Uh, that's, that's inflationary in itself. So lots of problems here that are macro in nature that spill over into our industry and uh, have a detrimental impact, frankly. And it's hard to pencil a deal when interest, you're looking at a six, six and a half percent perm loan. Uh, so you probably go with a float. When you go with a float, you better have a cap. And that cap's probably going to be at that six percent, six and a half, seven percent. And it's going to be expensive. If you're in, in the money cap, it's going to be real expensive. Hmm. Are you kind of thinking that uh, some of these operators, you know, again, with, with, with you know, 80 percent leverage floating and a lot of these C-class properties, B-class properties, what have you, do you think that they could maybe live to see another day because the Fed will be more or less uh, compelled or forced to uh, bring the rates back down? Yeah, I think that the rates will have to come back down and or there's going to have to be some kind of uh, bailout. I hate to say that term, but the banks are going to have to be supported in some way, shape or form. And that's where I think we've done extended pretend before, just roll these 
loans that are maturing because the banks don't want these properties. Certainly, they don't want Class C pro- product, whether it's commercial or or uh, uh, multifamily. I think the bigger issue is going to be in the commercial space, especially with Class A office buildings, people not willing to return to work. As leases are starting to, to, to come up, companies are saying, we're out of here or we want to really downsize. And by the way, if we stay at all, we're going to pay you half the, the price per square foot or maybe even less than that. And I think that's where, the, the, where it starts. I, I don't think it's as big an issue on the apartment side. Why? Because we've seen such tremendous rent growth. Our portfolio, Roger, year over year rent growth was 13.7% for 2022. Now that's the market rate, the market rate portfolio. We can't be that aggressive on the affordable side. But uh, I think Class C depends on occupancy. If Class C occupancy holds up, they'll be able to make their payments and probably get some sort of, a, of a, an extension on their, their loan if it's coming due this year and may be able to do a, an interest only, perhaps, but the banks don't want these properties back. They're, that's not the business they're in. Mm, interesting. Wow. Very interesting perspective from a guy that's been doing this a long time. What would you say are the most important lessons you've learned, Lee? Again, I mentioned margin of safety, and that's always build in a margin of safety. Uh, another important lesson I've learned is uh, don't buy into FOMO. Uh, if, if people want to know what FOMO is, that's fear of missing out. And you end up with kind of a herd mentality and people are bidding up uh, properties uh, because they're afraid that if they don't, somebody else is going to beat them to it. And, and guess what? That does happen. But I think if you stick to your fundamentals and your principles, your, your investment principles, and you build that margin of safety, you may do fewer deals, but they're safe deals and they'll work. Our, our leverage is, is 65 to 68% uh, on our uh, on our market rate deals. And we're probably less than that. We're probably 55 to 60% on our uh, affordable deals. So I, you know, I can sleep at night knowing that, you know, we've got enough debt coverage ratio to, to sustain. So that's, I've, I've learned uh, stick to your principles in, in, from an investment standpoint. Another soft thing I've learned is about culture. And so this is more from an operational standpoint. I used to poo-poo uh, from a management standpoint, the whole notion of culture. It was woo-woo and uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And I got religion here probably eight, nine, 10 years ago and have realized that building a, a sound culture on solid core values is the way that you're able to make these properties perform. Now, guess what? We have a long way to go to, to reach optimal performance, but we're a lot better off now than we, we were in the past. Uh, we have less turnover of our team. It's still tough. I mean, finding maintenance technicians in this current environment has been extremely difficult. But uh, if you hire the right people and they buy into your culture and you treat people uh, with respect and uh, you show gratitude, I think that all of that lines up nicely uh, for positive uh, operations and, and performance of your assets. And so, again, that's a kind of a softer thing I've learned, but it, it was equally important here, I think. 
Well, I mean, it makes sense if it, it you know, because uh, retention of employees it, it turns into retention of tenants and um, you, you end up doing better. Yeah. And uh, you end up, I mean, bluntly making more money. How does uh, one get a hold of you, Lee, if they want to find out more about Cohen Esri? You guys certainly have a lot of things going on and uh, right, different ways people can engage with you. Certainly. So our website is www.cohenesrey.com, cohenesrey.com. And I'm L. Harris at cohenesrey.com. Uh, welcome to email me. And uh, I don't do Twitter or that kind of thing, but uh, I, I'm on email every day. Got it. Lee, I hope we can do this next year because uh, you're a, just a fantastic guy to talk to, man. You, your, your wealth of knowledge is uh, really fantastic. So I, I appreciate well, it. Well, thank you for having me back. You got it. And uh, have a good rest of the year and uh, let's connect uh, in, in 24. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. See you. Bye. 